Now we're going to turn in our Bible this morning to Psalm 16. Psalm 16. Let's hear the word of the Lord. You find the place. Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, Thou art my Lord. My goodness extendeth not to thee, but to the saints that are in the earth, and to the excellent in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer, nor take up their names into my lips. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in love, in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Amen. We know the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now my text this morning is taken from Psalm 16 and the verse 8. And it reads as follows. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. And my theme today is put up on the church website is this, the secret of a life of power and victory. Now, I believe that it's possible, despite the godless environment in which we all live, to live a victorious Christian life. I want you to understand today that a life of power and victory for the Christian is indeed a glorious reality. A life of power and victory, of course, that centers in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was King David himself that discovered that golden secret. I believe that Psalm 16 verse 8 contains the secret to such a victorious life. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Now, many of God's people today are indeed weary. And many of them are looking for comfort. And of course, you know that I believe in preaching comfort to God's people. And you think of the message last week, God's encouragement to weary saints, just as one example. 
They also believe in the need to counsel and instruct and enlighten God's people. In fact, in this particular psalm, you have got the word counsel. I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. I also believe that God's people need to be challenged and exhorted to live a life of power and victory before the Lord. Hence this morning the title, The Secret of a Life of Power and Victory. Now notice the title to the psalm. It says, Mictam of David. Now, now what does that mean? I have to tell you that Bible scholars are divided. They're of different opinions. There's three common shades of meaning. The first shade of meaning is that it's like a, a golden secret. Now remember, the Psalms are not just a piece of poetry, not, not a, a nice sentimental piece of history. The Psalms, remember, are an inspired recount of an historical incident in the life of David. And there are other Psalms that bear this title, Mictam of David, for example, 56 right through to 60. And there's something in David's mind that he wants us to remember. Something that's like a, a golden secret in his mind. Something that's written to us in letters of gold. And David, I believe, is thinking of one of the golden events in his life. And he wants us to remember it. He wants us to take hold upon it. He, he, he wants us to see it as something as rare and precious as gold is. Other scholars maintain that Mictam refers to a kind of mysterious secret, something that needs to be revealed or something that needs to be unfolded. These words, Psalm 16, refer not just to the life and times of King David. They actually refer to our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know that Psalm 16 is a messianic psalm? That the Lord Jesus is present here? Isn't it true that the Apostle Peter made reference to Psalm 16 in the day of Pentecost? Think of him preaching his first faithful, fiery sermon after his restoration from backsliding. There he is under the power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit. And as he preaches the word of God, he quotes from uh, in Acts 2, 25 to 28, he actually quotes the last four verses of Psalm 16. You can compare scripture with scripture and you can see that he was referring it to Jesus Christ. Psalm 16 is also quoted by the Apostle Paul in reference to the vicarious death, bloodshedding and subsequent resurrection victory of the Lord Jesus. So, so ultimately, when you think of the Psalms, and Psalm 16 in particular, you discover that it finds its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, when you think of these words, I have set the Lord always before me, you discover that Jesus Christ is really the only one who can truly say that. And he can say it in perfect sinlessness, and he can say it in perfect holiness. He can say it in perfect honesty. Remember, Christ is in the Old Testament. Here he is in Psalm 16. You see, the Old Testament has loads to say about Christ. Because Christ, we believe, is the key to the Scriptures. So there is a mysterious secret here. It's, it's drawing us to Christ to consider him. The other meaning by the scholars is it's an engraved secret. 
In other words, when you engrave something, you, 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 you want it to be preserved. And you preserve it so others can, can learn from it and others can be helped and guided and, and blessed. And in the context here, King David has spent approximately about 10 years in the wilderness of Ziph hiding from King Saul. King Saul has hired about 3,000 experienced soldiers and they're out hunting for David. They, they want to slay him, but they don't find him. Why? Because the Lord is keeping him safe. Because the Lord is providing for his child. For, for, for the Lord is protecting him during all that time. And what was the secret of David's life? Well, well, here's the secret. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. And as I think of these words, and I did think about them uh, during the week, I thought of a, a golden, mysterious, engraved secret that came from the lips of a child of God. David did write these words. David has recorded them for us. And he wrote these words as an expression of his own experience before the Lord. He wasn't saying it sinlessly. He wasn't saying it perfectly. But he was saying it sincerely. He was saying it perseveringly. I believe it's a wonderful statement that has come from the depths of his heart and mind. Here he is surrounded by trials and troubles. Surrounded by saints and sinners. Surrounded by choices and consequences. And in the providence of God, in that situation, in the wilderness of Ziph, ten years hunted like an animal, there's one desire that fills his heart and mind. One thing that welds up in his soul. And what is that one thing? It was to have the Lord always before him in his spiritual vision. And I thought as a follow-up text to last week, Here's an appropriate text for the child of God. As we journey through life, we all face ups and downs, mountains and valleys, joys and sorrows, laughter and loathing. And in every situation on that journey in life, there's one thing that we must do, and that is we must fix or set our hearts and minds on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And as I thought in these words, I thought of three things. Think of the resolution that is announced. I have set the Lord always before me. You see, King David is making a statement of fact. He's resolving to do something. I don't believe this happened accidentally. I don't believe it fell out of the sky into his lap. It's not something that he just drifted into. No, it's a statement of his firm intention and resolve. It came from his heart. It came from his mind. It is fixed supremely upon the Lord. It's like making a vow. It's like making a pledge. Something that he is doing. And I believe it's a resolution, therefore, for every genuine child of God to consider. Something for all of us to do. Now notice here in the resolution that is announced, the person. It says, I have set the Lord. Do, do you see that? Notice, young people, it's in capital letters. And as I read this psalm, I, I, I read it carefully. 
And, and I see a, a, a threefold reference to the being of our God. In Psalm 16, verse 1, it's preserve me, O God. And the word for God there is Elohim. And when you read Elohim in the Bible, it has to do with creator and maker. In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. The, the one who made us. The, the one who gives us life. The, the one who preserves our life. The one who sustains our life. In other words, he's the all-powerful one. He, he was focusing in on one who's maker and creator. And then if you look very carefully at verse 2, it says, O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord. Again, it's in capital letters. Do you see that? And when it's in capital letters, it's a reference to Jehovah. It's a reference to the God of the covenant. The one who is faithful in keeping his promise, not only to his only begotten son, but also to all the seed that are in his son. So, so there you've got one who is no, uh, not just maker, but, but one who is mediator. One who makes a promise and, and works to fulfill the promise and keeps it. Now if you look again at verse 2 very carefully, it says, Thou art my Lord. And notice the change. You've got a, a capital L, and then you have got smaller letters, O-R-D. It's a different word. It's even a different word in the Hebrew. And, and it means master. Now, now, let's put all that together. In any situation in life, this all-powerful creator God, this God of the covenant who promises things that he's able to fulfill, this personal God stands supreme. This personal God, all-powerful, promising one, he's the object of my faith, the object of my love, the object of my obedience, the object of my affections, the object of my mediation. And King David is telling us that he firmly resolves to set the Lord as maker and mediator and master before him. No one else, nothing else. Only and always the Lord. It's not God first, and we believe that, but it's God at the center. I want you to understand that. And, and when the Lord Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, whenever he told us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things shall be added unto you, then it was not just a, a principle to say, put God first, and you can do your thing Secondly, no, it's to have God at the center, to, to set him before your face by grace and know the help of this all-powerful, this promising, personal God. So, so that's the person here in this resolution. Notice the principle here. He says, I have set. Now we'll pause there. You see the word set? It means fixed. And if we think of the whole phrase, I have set the Lord always before me, what does it mean? And it means this. It means to fix our hearts and minds in him as the object of our faith, love, obedience, affections, mediation, and everything else. 
You see, let me tie it up with verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. I, I think of the great motto on the currency of the United States of America, a motto for life that's supposed to govern the citizens of the United States of America, in God we trust. Isn't it sad today that the United States of America is no longer one nation under God? Isn't it sad that many of the people there have forgotten about the Lord and turned their back on him? And they failed to hear the words, look unto me and be ye saved, all ye ends of the earth, Isaiah 45 and 22. And you see, what does that mean, look unto me? Well, it ties into what we said last week. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. What does that mean? It means look away from self. Look away from our sin. Look away from every other sinner to what they're doing. Look away from the saints and their lifestyle. Look away from your station in life. Look away from society. Look away from any situation that you faith. And look away from these things, because that's literally what it means. And, and, and look unto me. If we tie into last week, remember he's the author and finisher of our faith. Hebrews 12 and 2. You see, the author of our faith, true faith starts with Jesus Christ. He's the author. True faith is his gift to us. It's not something natural to us. It's not something we possess in ourselves. It's his gift to us in the new birth. Ephesians 2 and 8, for by grace he is saved through faith. And that, speaking of faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. But he's also the finisher. And we pointed out that that word finisher means preserver. It means protector. It means perfecter. And you see, child of God, if you fix your heart and mind in Jesus Christ as the object of your faith, it doesn't matter if all hell's against us. It doesn't matter what the world says or does. It doesn't matter about the inward desires of the inward remaining corruption of our flesh. It, it doesn't matter what the, the devil does. True faith in him cannot be destroyed. It cannot be uh, uh, fully or, or finally destroyed. Wasn't Paul confident? If you look with me at Philippians chapter 1, uh, verse 6, the apostle Paul could say this. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work on you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. You see, here's the answer for the United States of America this morning. Here's the answer for the United Kingdom. Here's the answer for we Northern Ireland. And the answer is this, that we need to fix our heart and mind on Jesus Christ alone as the object of our faith. Jesus Christ is the perfect answer to every spiritual query. Jesus Christ is the perfect answer to every spiritual quest. So a man goes on a spiritual journey, it ends with Christ. Jesus Christ is the perfect answer to every need. What do, what do people need this morning? Well, well, they need pardon. Well, you'll find a perfect pardon in Jesus Christ. John 1 Verse 7 tells us, The blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. Ephesians 1 and 7, In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins according to the righteous, righteousness of his grace. 
But I want to tell you this morning, the gospel is more than just a mere pardon. It's more than a, a mere full and free and forever pardon. It includes that. But, 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 but when you need righteousness, we discover that a perfect righteousness with which you stand before God is found in Jesus Christ. Not, not a works-based righteousness. Not, not, not a self-righteousness for all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, Isaiah 64 and verse 6. Once we recognize our sin and repudiate our own righteousness, repudiate our own wisdom, repudiate our own strength, repudiate our own uh, holiness, we discover something that Jesus Christ is all that we need. Isn't this what Paul was emphasizing whenever he said in the book of uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and in the verse 30, he made a tremendous statement. I want you to listen to it. This is what he said. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You see, recognizing that Jesus Christ is all that we need, then if we need pardon or righteousness or reconciliation with God or rest or, or, or reward, we find it all in Christ. So I asked this morning, very simply yet honestly, have you recognized your need of him? Do you look away from yourself because you see no hope in self? You look away from the church because there's no hope in the church by itself? There's no hope or help in the things of the world? And, and you, like the psalmist, want to make a, a, a simple statement by way of a, a principle statement, a, a, and it's this, Christ for me. And let me add something else. This is not just a decision of a moment. This is a principle of one's whole life. The Bible says the just shall live by his faith. There is a time that true faith commences when we're laying hold on Christ and fixing our heart and mind in him. But I want you to notice it, it continues. It's not just a decision of a moment. It's a principle of a whole life. You take the word believeth in John 3 and 16. He that believeth. Notice it's in the present continuous tense. Now why do I want to emphasize that this morning? For this reason. Many in the 21st century, thousands profess to have eternal life. They tell me, but there was a time when I trusted Christ. There was a time when I asked him to be my savior. And they profess him. Is he your savior? Yes. And they look back to that decision that they made, maybe as a child or as a teenager. But that decision has made no difference to their life. Their life has never been changed or transformed. They're professing that they've got eternal life, but they do not know him. They're not acknowledging him. They're, they're, there's little or no love for him. They're, they're not loyal to him. I want to say this morning, I don't believe that's anything to do with true Bible belief in Christianity. I believe it's a, it's a perversion of Christianity. You see, true Bible belief in Christianity starts with a decision. And the decision is this, Christ for me. But that's not just a decision of a moment. That's the principle of a whole life. Listen to John 1, verse 12. But as many as received him. The word received is a simple past tense. In other words, it's done with. It's a once and for all. 
but as many as received him. To them give he the power or the right or the authority to become the sons of God, even to them that believe. And the word believe is not a past tense. It's a present tense. It means they continue to trust in him. They continue to adhere to him. They continue to rely on him. You see, many say they believe in Christ. But they have no desire to continue with Christ. They're not continually trusting and adhering and relying on him. And I have to say this morning that those that have just fixed their mind on a decision of a moment but it doesn't impact upon their life, I doubt whether they're genuinely saved. The question of questions for you this morning is this. Is Jesus Christ the object of my faith? That's what was in the heart and mind of the psalmist. He was the object of the psalmist's fullness. He discovered that all he needed was in that relationship that he had with the Lord. He was the object of the psalmist's faithfulness. I I can live out the Christian life through Christ, not without Christ, not on the basis of my own strength or power. You see, the word set here, as I've said, it means fixed. It's a very strong word in the Hebrew. You've got to think of something that can't be changed. Think of the throne in Revelation 4 that's set in heaven. In other words, it's it's unmovable. It it lasts forever, not for a short time. You see, it's not just a a decision of the moment. There's a permanence about this. So, So that's the principle. Notice very quickly here the period here. It says always. In other words, for all time, all seasons, in all situations in life, in all stations in life. So at all times, and in all places, and in all situations, in all circumstances, wherever our earthly life takes us on that journey, then I'll have my heart and mind fixed in this. I will set the Lord always before me. Young people, that applies to school. That applies to those in the university. That, that applies to the workplace. And there's so many areas that that could be applied in. Heart and mind's fixed in him. Notice the protector here. If you, if you look at the text, it says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. Now, now where's the Lord Jesus this morning? He is with you, lo, I am with you always. And where's he at? He's at your right hand. And of course, the right hand is the most useful. He's there to provide. He's there to defend. He's there to support. And the Lord Jesus this morning is by your right side. And he's there ready to help you as a struggling child of God. He's there to provide strength for you. Get the thought in your mind. He is next to me. And I'm next to him. Do you know there's a famous preacher in the United Kingdom. I believe he was a Welsh preacher called Matthew Matthews. And he's a very dramatic preacher. Certainly not as dramatic as me. But he was preaching in Philippians 4 verse 13. And he was asking this. He was pretending Paul was with him in the pulpit. And he says, now Paul, you're telling us that you can do all things. I can. You can't, Paul. You're just a mere man, Paul. Paul, I don't believe you. 
Paul, it's not true. Paul, I want to tell you something. I'll bet you you can't. I'm not a betting man. He took a coin out of his pocket. I'll bet you that you can't. And Paul says, I can. You can't, Paul. I can. You can't, Paul. And that went on in the pulpit. And then he said, right, right Paul. We've been listening to you. You said you can. How can you do it, Paul? And here was the answer. Through Christ, which strengthens me. And then he said, but Paul, you're cheating. Paul, there's two of you. There's someone at your right hand. You see, in Christ, through Christ, his strength, wisdom, help, power, for Christ, to be with Christ. There's the resolution that is announced. Very quickly. The realization that is affirmed. If we go back to these words, I have set the Lord always before me. You see, King David, as we've said, has resolved by way of a statement of fact to do something. And how many times in life's journey have we resolved to do something? For example, sometimes we say, well, well, I'm going to pray more. I'm going to study my Bible more. I'm going to try and witness more, at least once a week. I'm going to try and love Christ more. And we're very sincere. And we're saying, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. I have no one then to say, well, I'm going to give a portion of the income that I have to the Lord. Maybe they've sold some business or they have inherited some money and they've said, I'm going to give it to the Lord. And, and they've been very sincere in what they've said. But sadly, so many of those resolutions that we think in our head, that we, we intend to do, are just actions of the flesh. Because as you know, it's one thing to make up your mind that you're going to resolve to do something. And it's quite another thing to do it. And how do you do it? Well, well, you don't do it by your own strength or power. You only do it by fixing your heart and mind on Christ. And I want to tell you that's how the Apostle Paul lived out his Christian life. We've made reference many times to Galatians uh, chapter 2 and verse 20. Listen again to what the Apostle Paul tells us there. Galatians 2 and 20, he says... I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, it's not just a matter of making up your mind that you're going to do better. Because so often when we say, by way of resolution, I'm going to do something, then we, we, we don't do it and we feel miserably and we feel bad. We might even feel mad at ourselves. And we might even feel depressed. And I believe this morning that our belief in Christ must govern how we behave. We've often said before from this pulpit that right believing results in right living. And right living is always rooted in right believing. And David is thinking about the day that he trusted the Lord as his own personal saviour and redeemer. He said, in thee do I put my trust. He says, by way of testimony, thou art my 
Lord. He tells us here in the verse 2, my goodness extendeth not to thee. He recognized he had no goodness of his own to satisfy God, that all his righteousness was as filthy rags. And in that context then, having that knowledge, he says to us by way of a realization, I have set the Lord always before me. You see, there's a realization that is affirmed. The Lord's before me. So all the possessions of the world. What shall profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? All the pleasures of the world, and there are pleasures of sin in the world for a season. Uh, and you think of the Hollywood stars, film stars and footballers and pop stars. You, you think of the power that, that people possess. You think of people's popularity, their fame and their fortune. You think of their pursuits. You think of their palaces. You think of people that are living in $50 million houses with a fleet of 12 cars. And, 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 and the, oh, well, words just wouldn't describe what, what I could say about particular houses. But you know what? It's nothing before him. It's nothing without him. It's nothing to him. I, I was thinking of pleasures of sin for a season. I, I was thinking of young people going headlong into pleasures of sin for a season. I, I've discovered that uh, somewhere in the world, you, you could look it up and maybe Google this for me and find out where it's from. There's a, a flower called the dead horse flower. It's not a lovely name for a flower. What sort of flower is that in your garden? That's a dead horse flower. Oh, what? What sort of flower is that? Well, do you know what's lovely to look at? And I'm told that it's got a beautiful smell. But once you pluck it up, once you decide, you know what, I'm bringing you into the, the, the house. You're going to sit on the table. I, I'm, I'm having a dinner party and I'm going to let everybody see this beautiful flower during the day. The moment you pluck it up and take it to yourself, you know what happens? It begins to die. And then it begins to give off an unpleasant odor. And before the dinner party would be over, you'd be chucking it out. The dead horse flower. It's like the pleasures of life. You take them to your bosom, but they're there for a short season. And, and while it's lovely to look at and, and you feel it, it's, it's going to help you, it doesn't last. It never truly satisfies. Here's the psalmist discovering, in thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand, what are they? They're pleasures forevermore. I want you to realize something. As David not only announced this resolution and affirmed this realization, he's living as an outcast. For 10 years, he's living in the wilderness as if for 10 years, he's in caves. Life has been tough. Life has been hard. But he rested in this. He, he realized this. All that he needed was in the Lord. And he didn't need a multiplicity of possessions. He didn't need the pleasures of this life. He didn't need the, the, the pomp and the, and the fame and the fortune of man. He didn't need a fancy palace. He didn't need royal robes. All he needed was in the Lord. And whatever his set circumstances were, he was glad that he was a Christian. He had the joy of a full and free and forever pardon. He had the joy of the knowledge of God. And, and, and one day, as day passed upon day, he was enjoying the Lord. 
and he had this assurance that one day he'd be with him. Do we have that same assurance? A realization that's a fixed. I do set. It means fixed. All these other things were set to the side. He fixed his heart and mind on the Lord. Could I say one other thing here? The resignation that is assured. I shall not be moved. You see, he believes that he's going to be guided by the Lord, whatever his circumstances are. You know that guidance is connected to three things. Think of a, a ship coming into harbor. Think of a plane coming into land in any airport. There's, there's three lights in that cockpit or, or, or in that wheelhouse that will line up to guide the captain or the pilot safely into the port or, or into the harbor. And spiritually, there's three lights for the people of God. The Word of God and the Spirit of God and the providence of God. And David was conscious of that. That was how he was being guided. He was being guarded by the Lord for 10 years. Days of disappointment, days of discouragement, days of despair. He was being granted by the Lord. He said, I shall not be moved. We, we live in a world that's in a state of chaos at the moment. Changing world. Wars and rumors of wars. We can see riots on our television. We're hearing of tension between Turkey and Greece, tension between China and India, tensions between the United States of America and Iran, tensions to do with the little land of Israel, pray for the land of Israel, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We're, we're experiencing this coronavirus. We're, we've been hearing reports that other viruses could be coming even more deadly to our shores. Many are, are, are worried about economic disaster and rising house prices. And even though house prices have shot away up, they're, they're most likely to fall down again. At rising food prices, loss of job, fear of Islam, resurgent Roman Catholicism, apostate Protestantism. I think of a Church of Ireland cleric this week at spearheading a, a gay pride march in Cookstown next Saturday. Isn't that so sad? Isn't that disgraceful? And you see, all this is going on in the world. And yet the child of God, what does he say? He says, I shall not be moved. He can stand unmovable. Why? Because he's standing firm on the promises of God. He's standing firm on the purposes of God. God's sovereign. God's in control. It's not out of control. It's under his care. It's proceeding according to his will. And he can stand in the person of God. I said to some young people this week, and I'm going to repeat this, and I trust that if they're listening, they'll bear it in mind. Do you know the greatest knowledge in the world, young people? It's to know God. And that's not just from my lips. That's really from the lips of uh, a great preacher called John Calvin in Geneva many, many years ago. It's in the opening chapter of his institutes. You see, God intended us to know him. And God has wonderfully set out to make himself known. And as I've said, the greatest thing a man can know in the world is to know God. And it doesn't matter what other knowledge you have, if you don't know God, you really know nothing. 
God has revealed himself in creation. Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the earth showeth forth his handiwork. So whether it's the sun, the moon, the stars, whether it's the, the planetary heavens, whether it's the smallest cell in the human body, whether it's the, the eye or, or, or the finger, God is revealing himself. God has revealed himself in providence. God has revealed himself in redemption. He has spoken unto us in these last days by his Son. And yet the amazing thing is this. Despite the greatest knowledge in the world being the knowledge of God, and despite the greatest treasure in the world being the Word of God, and is not what Archibald Naismith's young son wrote in answer to the essay, My Greatest Treasure, to his teacher, and what a wonderful thing it is to have the Word of God. And we have Bibles galore. We have, we have multiplicity of Bibles. I've got a box full of Bibles that we discovered in the old porta cabin, Sammy and me, this week. We're going to send it off to Kenya. But a multiplicity of Bibles. So here on the one hand, you've got the greatest knowledge in the world is to know God. And the greatest treasure in the world is the Word of God. And yet there's so little love for our Lord Jesus Christ within our hearts. There's so little meditation. It seems to be all so cold and all so mechanical. Cold about the things of God. Oh, that we could rediscover the secret. That our duty and chief goal of all our activity on earth, our time, our sojourn, is that we might know him. And that all that we do all our labor, whether it's in the house or whether it's in school, and I know you ladies work hard in the house and we, we appreciate that and we know it's a tremendous effort for many, even of you to be out in the house of God. And, and, and whether it's at your job, let's do it before him with the chief knowledge that I am there so that I would know him and be a witness for him. Here's a resignation that is assured. I shall not be moved because he's guiding me. He is guarding me, but he's granted me this steadfastness because it's rooted in the knowledge of him. Oh, that we could know him better and love him more. Will you pray that I know him better? and that I love him more. Thank you for listening.